Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Dancing to the jailhouse rock. Has there ever been a boomerang fashioned like that mugshot of President Donald Trump in a Georgia jailhouse? I doubt it. It will come back and hit the person who threw it with quite a mighty wallop, I predict. Tucker Carlson is headed for Moscow to interview President Vladimir Putin. Now that will break the internet. And a school called Genesis in Hull. If you're not from Britain, you'd have to see it to know how unlikely a place to be force-feeding four-year-olds with books on Grandad's Pride, complete with fetish gear and all. And what next after the Prigozhin tragedy, where he plummeted to earth and oblivion? Whether he's in heaven or whether he's in hell, only God knows. But Scott Ritter probably knows what happens next. We'll be talking to him and to the legend that is Garland Nixon in the next two hours. Stay tuned. It is the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, Tucker Carlson's interview with Colonel Douglas McGregor, a regular guest of ours on the mother of all talk shows, may well turn out to be the most important interview that you will ever watch. Unless it's heeded and you live a long life to live and listen, watch to many others. But if you don't, then it will have been the most important tour de force by a military man, a serving officer, a combat veteran, a former advisor to the Pentagon and to the White House. Tucker Carlson's own monologue, we might call it, was equally powerful. But the grasp of detail, the verisimilitude of the battlefield displayed by Colonel McGregor will live long in the imagination, if, that is, we live long. Tucker Carlson has now asked to interview President Putin. I could not myself do so because, although they wouldn't like to test it in court, the meaning, it seems to me, although I cannot ask a lawyer, for no lawyer would be legally permitted to advise me, but it seems to me the meaning of Liz Truss's order in council regarding the dealings of people like me with anybody in Russia in any position of power would be that I would be subject to prosecution and potentially seven years in prison if I interviewed Vladimir Putin. But Tucker Carlson can do so because America is, despite everything, a far freer country than the United Kingdom, though 
the United Kingdom, with a splendid conceit of itself, will find that formulation hard to swallow. But it's proved the pudding uh, in the eating. If Tucker Carlson goes to Moscow and interviews Putin, it will break the internet. Because not hundreds of millions. I think the last interview between Carlson and Trump is now over 250 million views. Just imagine that. If he'd done it on Fox, it would have got 3 million views. If he'd done it on the mother of all talk shows, he'd have got over 2 million views. But Tucker Carlson achieved more than 250 million views interviewing Trump. He'll get more when he interviews Putin because all over the world, people are now open to and indeed searching for a way out of the disaster that we, or rather our leaders, have gotten us into. So more power to your elbow, Mr. Carlson. I'm pretty sure the interview will go ahead. And I hope that Putin is able, with the vast international audience, that that interview would have to reach us, to reach those who want to know what it's all about, what's at stake, and where is it going. We can't interview Putin, but we can interview the legendary Scott Ritter. We do regularly. His last clip with me obtained 250,000 views, a record YouTube clip on modes. And I'm pretty sure tonight's will be no different. Jailhouse Rock, we're asking. Will Donald Trump make the Jailhouse Rock? Will he go from the Jailhouse to the White House? I'm increasingly persuaded that he will do so and in a landslide. Now, for the numb skulls out there, I say that not because I want Donald Trump to be the president of the USA. I want Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to be the president of the USA. Have you got that? How many times do I need to repeat that? I'm making an observation as a political figure of more than 50 years' experience, more or less full-time in politics, and as a broadcaster and a journalist and a man that can read the writing on the wall. And I'll tell you when the moment was that I finally concluded, I think definitively, that Donald Trump will win the next presidential election. It was when I saw that mugshot from the jailhouse in Georgia. The district attorney who's prosecuting him, Fanny somebody, crazy name, crazy lady. When I saw not only that it was a mugshot in which the Americans like to specialize, they love dressing accused people, not convicted people, people who have the presumption of innocence, who are innocent, until proven guilty, they love to dress them up like they'd just fallen off the Monopoly board in that corner, the get-out-of-jail-free card corner. They love to put them in chains 
and manacles and do the perp walk. They love to bring them into a courtroom like they were already multiply convicted monsters, even though at that stage, at least, they haven't even been tried, let alone convicted. So they love this kind of thing. And overwhelmingly, it's black people that appear in pictures like this. Ask your memory if that's true or not. And actually, one of the first consequences of this picture in Georgia, once the heartland of the Confederacy, was to achieve a massive swing amongst black voters in favor of Donald Trump. They saw in that picture something of their own lives or the lives of relatives or people that they know in their communities. And the internet has exploded with black people, some of them the most unlikely coves, saying they're getting behind Donald Trump. I won't use the N-word. They are entitled to use it, and most of them did. For them, Donald Trump has become one of them, unfairly victimized by the U.S. injustice system that if it can, will send him away on a sentence of hundreds of years when everybody knows that this is only happening. Because if it doesn't, then Donald Trump will win the election by such a landslide that even the ballot riggers in the state of Georgia or Ohio or anywhere else, Wisconsin, will not be able to do a damn thing about it. What's he charged with? He's charged with resisting the outcome of an election, with denying the outcome of an election, with believing or at least pretending to believe that the election result was different to the one that was published and implemented. But of course, there is scarcely a politician alive, including me, who has never believed and or opined that their election was stolen, that their election result should be overturned, or that it was not genuine, that it was a fake, rigged election. That's what Trump claimed. Nixon claimed it in 1960 with some validity that President Jack Kennedy, the best president they ever had, had stolen the election, or rather his father in alliance uh, with the mob in Chicago, who still run Chicago, had stolen it for him. Don't you recall Al Gore contesting the election of George W. Bush again with every justification that election was stolen. And all of the Democrats, Michael Moore even made a movie that won an Oscar about it. Don't you remember Stacey Abrams in the state of Georgia doing everything that she could to overturn the election that defeated her? 
for governor of the state. Don't you recall Hillary Clinton claiming that she had been illegitimately robbed of the presidency by some Russian Facebook ads? Don't you remember any of these things? Don't you remember all these Democrats who insisted that Trump was not the, the legitimate president of the U.S. and they spent four years trying to force him out of it. How's that for denying the result of an election? How's that for seeking to reverse the outcome of an election and to put Trump on trial when he is ahead of Joe Biden in the public opinion polls, when he's ahead by up to 50 points of all other Republican nominees to fight Joe Biden. This is banana republic territory. And Fanny, you might have thought you were being very clever, but actually you have given Trump an election victory on a plate. Now, I don't know if they will be able to actually jail Trump I don't know if the deep state in the United States might not consider that that actually would be the worst outcome of all for a man to become elected president when he's behind bars in a Georgia penitentiary. I don't know. I like to think, but then I always do like to think that people will eventually come to their senses. But if they do, that's not going to stop Trump. And then, as Tucker Carlson put to Donald Trump in the now famous world record shattering interview, why wouldn't they kill you? After all, this is a country that kills its presidents. It removed Nixon a wiser man than any that came after him from office over an office burglary in the Watergate building. This is a country that murdered in plain sight their greatest president, Jack Kennedy, in that nightmare on Elm Street. This is a country that murdered his brother in California when he was on his way, ineluctably, to become the president in 1968, why would they stop short of rigging elections? Why would they stop short of stopping Donald Trump with extreme prejudice? So Trump raised a lot of money in the wake of that mugshot, $70 million in two days. His opinion poll ratings have leapt 5% since the publication of that mugshot. I strongly suggest, Donald, as kind of a fellow Scot to you, that you invest anything that you have got to invest in personal security because your card is marked, your number, your name is on a bullet somewhere in the armory of the deep state or any patsy that they can find with the capability of doing that job. Who killed Prigozhin? Well, 
We don't yet know, but we do know that he's dead. So those wishing for uh, uh, a Brigadoon moment where every seven years, Prigozhin reappears in the bush somewhere, perhaps in Sahelian Africa, sightings of him like Elvis on the moon or Michael Jackson in the mall. You can forget about that. Prigozhin is dead, as is Adkin, his number two. A number three has now risen to the post of number one. The question is, what will Russia do with Prigozhin now? Will it elevate his memory? Will he get a kind of state funeral? Will Putin attend the funeral? What will Russia do with the Wagner group now? Will they rename it? They keep saying that it's going to be absorbed into the Russian armed forces, but that never seems to happen. You know, my view, I've stated it many times. I abhor the excrescence of mercenary military companies in the state. The state must have a monopoly of that kind of force. But that's up to them. Scott Ritter will know what they're likely to do next. And it's one of the things that I'll be asking him, but only one of those things, because I have multiple questions about what happens next in the Ukraine. I have a strong feeling that as another of our famous guests, Larry Johnson said today, it's very likely that Volodymyr Zelensky will face a military coup in the not too distant future. As the flower of the manhood of Ukraine withers, on the vine, as the autumn rains and the winter snows and frosts loom ever larger on the horizon, and as the famed and ill-fated so-called counter-offensive turns into a bloody failure, and indeed has now, particularly on the Kopiansk front, gone the other way with Russia advancing almost without resistance on that particular front. But let me turn to a domestic story, but actually it's not that domestic. It is a story, I'm sure, that could have been read and told anywhere in the so-called Western world. I refer to the story today that a four-year-old child in a nursery school called Genesis in Hull. Have you seen Hull? Was force-fed a book called Grandad's Pride in which are depicted presumably gay men in fetish gear in a variety of clutches, I mean real fetish gear, I mean bondage gear, for four-year-olds or less in a nursery in England. Now, I know that Labour pioneered all this stuff, but Britain is supposed to have 
a conservative government. Indeed, has had one for the last 13 years. And yet this keeps on happening. In secondary schools, in primary schools, and now in nursery schools. Now what I'm about to say has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that granddad is gay. I have nothing against gay people. This program would not be coming out tonight, but for my gay friends that produce it. I'm talking about the sexualization of small children. I have an interest. I declare it. I am a father of six children, five of them young children. And my eldest child has five young children of her own. So my children are in the school system. My children go to a Roman Catholic school. Thank God. Thank God that the church has some means of defending our children against this premature sexualization. And I pray that they from the Pope downwards continue to resist these rising tides of toxicity that are poisoning our young people with sexual matters many years before they are emotionally, intellectually, morally ready to receive the messages that they will in time receive and make their own judgments. Now, Grandad's Pride was written by the recipient of the Waterstones Book Prize. It is published by Schuster, one of the world's biggest publishing houses. Genesis is a nursery school in the British system governed by British elected politicians. And yet, these small children were exposed in this book to illustrations of girls who'd had their breasts removed with visible scars, top trans scars, they called them. Men in the aforementioned suits, clothing, sexual clothing. Gay men don't walk around at work or down to Sainsbury's dressed in fetish gear. They wear it for sex. Good. Lovely. I like people who dress up for sex privately. Not to frighten the horses. Not to confuse the children. But between consenting adults behind closed doors, that's all I'm asking for. I will not Stand idly by, I will not remain quiet whilst four-year-old children are fed sexualized material that they cannot possibly understand 
or evaluate, but are being fed it so that it's in there and so that it will influence their thinking later on. How else, what else can it be for? I'd be as angry if a four-year-old child was given a book containing images of women dressed as I like them to be dressed at bedtime behind closed doors, I would be just as angry. But we all know that that would never happen. Could never happen. No school would ever give a four-year-old child images of women in black stockings and high heels. No school would be permitted to do so. Waterstones would never give an award to anyone who produced that book. Schuster would never publish it. And the big bookstores would not be giving it the house room that granddad's pride has just got. I'll be right back. I told you, this is the mother of all talk shows. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Our first guest, knows everything about America and American politics. He's the coolest of all cats. He's Garland Nixon. But just before I ask you what you think, Garland, let's take a quick 25-second look at what Donald Trump thinks. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. It is election interference of the most brazen kind. I'm surprised not everyone can see it. Let's hear from the one and only Garland Nixon how it's playing in Peoria. Garland, how is this all going down? I think that uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that Donald Trump's poll numbers are remaining high. Um, his support is remaining strong. It's not affecting in any way, shape or form the way the people who supported Donald Trump um, felt about him. I think it is obvious that the system wants Donald Trump out and that they're pulling out all stops uh, to ensure that that happens. The interesting thing that uh, I, I would like to see would be poll numbers amongst independents. We're not uh, we're not seeing a lot of poll numbers about how people feel. We're not particularly seeing how this is playing out um, amongst independents. I also think that, you know, the 
people who hate Donald Trump and who want to see him, you know, taken down are excited about the charges. But I think that this is going to be an extremely difficult case to prove. Well, especially as he implied and I adumbrated at the beginning, uh, most politicians, including most recently, are always contesting the results and outcomes of elections. How can that be a crime? Well, in fact, um, it is a, uh, you know, a, a very important part of the democratic process. You cannot argue that you have a democracy unless there is a, a method of challenging um, things that happen during the election that you feel may be illegal. As we know, the U.S. is quick to point out uh, problems with elections throughout the throughout the world, even where, in fact, they don't exist. So in this case, particularly, I, I think the thing that's interesting is that if Donald if one of two things happened, if, in fact, there was an election problem, Everything that Donald Trump said and did would be perfectly legal and acceptable. If, in fact, that what he claimed, if any of it was true, then he has the legal right to say all the things that he said and to do all the things that he did. Additionally, if he believed that those things were true, then, in fact, everything that he said and everything that he did is perfectly legal. So what they have to prove is that Donald Trump didn't believe that it was true. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty that Donald Trump, a man who has maintained up until this very day that he believes that there were illegalities and inconsistencies in the election, that it was not constitutionally sound, something I might add that millions of other Americans believe. Whether or not you or I or anybody believes it is irrelevant, millions of Americans believe that. And I don't think it's unreasonable, notwithstanding the even the evidence of the case. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that a belief held by tens of millions of Americans would be held by one more person, Donald Trump. And if that is the case, then everything that he did is perfectly legal. I might add one other thing. One of the things that I find conspicuous is that one of the phrases that was used in the law in the, in the complaint against Donald Trump by the by the prosecutor was that he said to the Georgia elector, whoever the person was in Georgia, he said, you know, find these votes, you know, these find them. But they left out the part where Donald Trump said, find these votes because we won. So Donald Trump didn't say create the votes in the same way that if I said find my glasses, it implies that I believe that I own a set of glasses. But when I say find my glasses because I own glasses, find these votes because we won, I think it's conspicuous. Why would the prosecutor leave out a particular part of a quote that to me tells the story that um, exonerates? I, I think it's exculpatory evidence, and that's something that exonerate, would help to exonerate Donald Trump. Tell us about this uh, Fulton County, isn't it, in the state of Georgia, and Fanny, as she will forever be remembered. Uh, is she is she a rogue prosecutor, uh, or is she tied in any way to the DOJ and to the Biden White House, in your view? Well, I'll be quite frank. I don't, um, you know, I haven't followed up on that as probably as well as I should. So I don't know her background um, as much as I probably should. But I will say this. You can put the entirety of the cases against Donald Trump together in that you you can start off by saying the state of New York 
literally the legislature of the state went in to session and passed a law so that one person, a woman, could sue Donald Trump. They passed the law one minute after midnight, she files the lawsuit against Donald Trump. We can say that in New York, a case that was passed over by the Federal Election Commission, the FEC looked at this and said, we don't see that it's actionable, we're not gonna charge Donald Trump. That a local prosecutor then took that same case and said, well, I think I'll use it to Donald Trump. What we can see is a pattern of, I would say, persecution against Donald Trump. I'm not a person. I'm far to the left. I'm where you are, George. My um, political ideology is antithetical to the things that Donald Trump believes in. But I think what we both believe in is justice. And Donald Trump is not getting no. justice whatsoever in this case. Uh, the Tucker Carlson, uh, Donald Trump interview uh, went head to head uh, with the donkey derby on Fox News uh, mm -hmm. with the also rans. It has racked up numbers uh, that are almost uh, unbelievable. They're certainly unprecedented. What do you account for Carlson's success on our medium now, by the way? I mean, I hope we one day enjoy the same success. What's the What's the X factor, if you like? What's the reason why Carson is turning in tens of millions of viewers for his programs? He's about to interview, if he hasn't done already, uh, somebody called X-Cube. You're a cooler guy than me. You'll know who that is. I've never heard of him. Uh, but he's interviewing all kinds of people and racking up tens of millions of views. Why? How? Well, this is the same dynamic as Joe Rogan. If you watch the GOP presidential debate, you'll understand why Donald Trump is blowing all of these people out. They simply did the usual old stale talking points. And we know for the Republican Party, it's lower taxes, pump more oil, things of that nature. Just talking points, sound bites that everyone has heard year after year. So we turn on, if you turn on the GOP debate, you hear the same stale sound bites over and over. I'll cut more taxes than you oil. No, I'll make the government smaller than you will. No, I'll pump more oil than you will. It's with a snooze fest. You go to Donald Trump, the same as Ro of, of Joe Rogan, uh, a Joe Rogan style show. Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson came across as two people that were at least having an honest conversation, an independent conversation, a conversation that wasn't the usual talking points. You got the feeling that there were a couple people sitting there that they were thinking about what they were saying, they were considering their answers, and they weren't just using stale talking points that have been approved by the deep state and approved by their parties. And that's Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, you don't have to agree with him, but he comes on and he seems like he really means what he says. That's what people want. They want a real conversation. That's now what they're getting with Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, Rose, uh, uh, Rogan. And of course, shows like yours and mine and alternative media. Alternative media is becoming the only option that people have to get an actual media and a true discussion of the facts. Now, there's no denying uh, that uh, Musk has made a difference on Twitter. Uh, he still owes me money, a lot of money, uh, and I still get interference. But I now have over half a million followers, uh, 507,000, I think, on X or on uh, Twitter. And it's undoubtedly true 
that for the vast majority of people, the chains, the shackles, have been loosened if not removed. Except there are some people who continue to be harassed. And I infer from what you said a minute or two ago, you are definitely one of those. What's happened? Well, um, earlier this week, Monday morning, I attempted to um, log into the same Twitter account that I've had for the last 14 years, using the same email address, using the same um, uh, password, the same phone number. I attempted to e-log into Twitter on Monday morning, and I got something popped up that said, change your password. Okay, I'll change my password. When I clicked on change your password, it said suspended or locked account and you can appeal. So I appealed the suspended or locked account. Here is the interesting thing. I will go to the meat of this. I went back and forth with Twitter. Hey, this is my account. What are you going to do? I can't get into my account. Provide us with such information, your name, your date of birth, blah, 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 blah. Okay. We went back and forth. And eventually I got an email from Twitter that said, we are unable to verify you. These exact words, unable to verify you as the account owner. We can't tell you who the true owner of this account is. We're sorry, this case is closed. You're free to start a new account. Now, that in and of itself sounds suspicious until you add this particular factor. I have a verified account and I pay for verification. I'm not a Twitter user. I am a Twitter customer. So when Twitter came out with this verification process under Elon Musk, they said, we want your name and phone number, email address, everything, you know, firstborn male child, whatever. Of course, I'm being facetious, but they asked for a lot of information. I gave them the information. I then got something back from Twitter. Congratulations. You're a verified account. You have a blue check mark. Okay, so I have a blue checkmark account. Anyone can go to my account. The account is still sitting there. There's still a blue checkmark. So if you look at that blue checkmark, one of the things that means is that really is the real Garland Nixon. However, after verifying my account, after charging me month after month for a verified account, an account that I've had 14 years with the exact same username and email address, I get a letter from uh, an email from Twitter that says, this is a verified account that I pay for. We are unable, meaning they don't have the capacity to verify me as the owner of the Twitter account that I pay monthly for the service specifically of verification. Now, if we take Twitter at, the, at their word, here's what that means. If they're telling the truth, which we have to assume that they are, that means they've done a pattern of fraud and deception. That means that they've said to their customers by the millions, they probably have millions of people paying eight or $11 a month, whatever it is that we pay, pay for us and we will provide the service of verification. However, if you ever come to us and say, hey, my account's locked. Now I need that service. I need you to verify me. We can't as they say, we are unable to verify you. Now, they should have put again, because they've already verified me. I am currently paying Twitter monthly for a verified account. It has a blue check mark that says to everyone that comes to that account, this is Garland Nixon. And Twitter sends a message to me that says, we can't verify you as the account owner. It's clocked up for life. You can never account. You can never access this account again. I find that to be one could look at that and say, I think that's fraud. I think it's un, unjustified enrichment. I think it's a number of really bad things that are actionable.
Well, uh, you live in the land of the lawyer. Uh, I, I'd get an attorney right away, uh, Garland, uh, and I'm sure uh, if, if you need one, my lawyers, uh, you know that Twitter is headquartered notionally in Dublin. That's where I'm suing them, in the Dublin courts. And the case is at quite an advanced stage now. Uh, if you're watching uh, Mr. Musk, uh, I used to say I'd settle for a fleet of uh, Teslas, but I'm afraid we're way past that now. Uh, you're welcome to approach my lawyer. I'll send you offset uh, how to do that because it might be useful uh, to have a brief in Dublin for this particular case. Garland Nixon, as always, an absolute pleasure to interview you this evening on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Trump jailhouse to White House. Well, uh, overwhelmingly, well over 80% of you uh, think that Trump is going to go from the jailhouse to the White House. It's the legend, Erobos, in New York on the line. Erobos, welcome back to the show. Salubrious evening, Mr. Galloway. And of course, I have to wish you the followers, friends, family, optimum health and strength in these times. Um, I, be, before, I just a, a short preamble. Um, I was just looking into British law right quick for the equivalent of what we have here as a class action lawsuit because I was listening to Garland and I was wondering if he could have joined you in a class action lawsuit. And from what I see here, the closest thing that you have, unless if I'm missing something, is called the Consumer Rights Act of 2015. I don't even know if it's applicable in the situation that you're experiencing with uh, with X or Twitter or whatever it is, it is now. But I do hope he joins you and several other people in a mass action. I think that would be a, a formidable weapon against uh, Elon and, and maybe there's something in the British system that would help you there. Uh, on to the real, um, well, that's part of the reason I call, but on to the major reason I call. You know, I was thinking, um, and I actually, you know, to harp on Garland again, you know, I've met him. Um, he came to New York recently as part of a humanity, um, saving humanity action from nuclear war. And part of his, um, speech presentation is he mentions how the billionaires would basically would be if they're not ripping each other apart uh, the security would realize that they're in charge they have the weapons and they will turn on the billionaires you know and um, take over in the bunkers but the more i've been thinking about this i've been thinking about the film uh, elysium which shows you that they're yeah. building um a, a space station and there's already a space station there, and I think what they're going to do is expand upon it. And um, according to Mark Johan, uh, former director of the International Space Station Division in NASA's Office of Human Exploration and Operations, he said, when I look at Elysium Space Station, I thought to myself, that's certainly achievable in this millennium. And, you know, they can always use the moon colony as a backup, you know, for like supplies, greenhouse things, minerals. So I don't think there'd be so much, because um, it, it would explain why all these billionaires, you know, every day they send in rockets up, 
you know, and, uh, to the space station or to the moon and given these rides. You know, so I don't think so much um, that there'd be shrivel, you know, shriveling, you know, uh, shivering in bunkers. I think they'll, um, it, it, they'll build a world, at least that would be um, the logical thing that they would do. They'll build a world that they could survey, even though it's a, it's a toxic slag heap irradiated for, for hundreds of years. If they can live there with artificial gravity and oxygen that they can engineer, um, and use the moon as a backup colony. I think I think that's what they'll that's what they'll do. You know, I was curious about your thoughts about this because this has been this has been well. Um, uh, yeah, I, actually, uh, my wife and I often uh, talk about the film Elysium and the extent to which uh, the the oligarchy have already created Elysium on Earth. Uh, but you're right, they're not entirely safe on Earth. Uh, the enragé of the Earth might come over the walls of their gated uh, communities. Their own security might uh, turn on them and open the gates uh, to the wretched of the Earth. So an Elysium in a gated community uh, has already been constructed by the by the 1%, but it is not guaranteed. And I have no doubt that they would have no compunction uh, of creating an Elysium in the air as uh, is fictionalized in this wonderful movie, uh, leaving an utterly dystopian Earth uh, behind, uh, still under their control, but only by brute force and very much behind. The truth is, though, that the balloon might go up long, long before they have any chance to create such an Elysium in space that would be the ultimate country club uh, for uh, the richest amongst us. Uh, such a thing is a long way off later in this millennium. But the danger of nuclear war is tomorrow or the next day, as we'll be discussing with the legend Scott Ritter right after this break. Stay tuned. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Just remember back in 2002, 2003, there was a wish by George Bush for regime change. That's what was driving him. Nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction, which of course didn't exist in Iraq. So they had to construct some sort of formula, some sort of cover story, in order to persuade the British public that intervention in Iraq was right. Now David Kelly, uh, as an expert in weapons of mass destruction, knew that uh, this was untrue. He knew that there were probably no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was a guy that could have brought down, that was a guy that could have brought down the whole system. I reckon you're chaff. 
you've been thrown up to divert uh, our probing. The Foreign Affairs Select Committee, that um, parliamentarian briefing, I think that was an indignity to him. We saw it on the news and my very first thought was shock. Um, oh my God, you know, this man is in the eye of the media hurricane. Uh, he should be protected by that at least. You've got that on your hands, Prime Minister. Are you going to resign over this? I don't know the details of how Lord Hutton happened to be selected, but what was certainly the case is that he was the right kind of judge to use from the point of view of Downing Street and the intelligence services as well. Of the 21 days of hearing, only one half of one day was spent on discussing the forensic aspects. That is disgusting. We were given the Hutton report the day before. It was published. But actually what happened was he went too far. The events of 2003 were disgraceful ones in this country's history and it's unfinished business. Those responsible for an illegal war, those responsible for the death of David Kelly, have not been brought to justice. There's no, been no inquest into David Kelly's death. There needs to be one. We need to make sure that those who behaved in a reprehensible way in 2003 are finally brought to book. That was uh, my film, Killing Kelly, that I made with the award-winning and one day Oscar winning, I predict, Irish director, Sean Murray. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud even of the poster, which is a work of art. You can get both the film and the poster at a knockdown price uh, on my shop at georgegalloway.com. Uh, but the fastest way to see the film, if you haven't seen it yet, is to support me on Patreon because all the Patreons get to see it for free. Now, the cost of supporting me on Patreon is literally less than a cup of tea in an insalubrious cafe, and I hope you'll think that my work is worth that. If I tell you I really need you to help me on Patreon, I hope that you can feel me. Uh, thank you uh, for those who are supporting me. Here are some of their comments. My good friend, whose wedding I attended, Scouser Lahr, says, the more the Democrats try to turn America into a banana republic by trying to throw Trump in jail, the more support he will gain. Imagine Trump wins the next US election from jail. I'm imagining it, brother, but what are we going to do about the Everton? Bert says, if the Democrats or Republicans don't come up with someone else, being that there is now an independent on the horizon. Uh, so search Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway and give me your support. I'd appreciate it. Let's go to the Oracle, the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, it's difficult to know even where to start, but let's start with Prigozhin, with Wagner, He's dead, isn't he? It's not, uh, it's not some kind of ruse. Who killed him? Well, first of all, we, the Russian government uh, has investigated the remains that have been recovered at the crash site of the uh, business jet that uh, went down uh, near the western Russian city of Tver, and they've confirmed that uh, Prigozhin was on that airplane and he is dead. Um, the list of people who would like to see Prigozhin dead is long. Um, and 
the one man that could guarantee his protection of Vladimir Putin for a number of reasons um, isn't wasn't going to guarantee his protection anymore. I mean, we need to remember that uh, Prigozhin launched a armed insurrection against Vladimir Putin, uh, his minister of defense, his chief of the general staff on June 23, 24. This wasn't uh, a game. 8,000 heavily armed men uh, charged up the M4 highway seizing control of two Russian cities before being halted outside of Moscow by thousands of Russian troops who were prepared to kill them. Um, Prigozhin himself was uh, put under risk by thousands of uh, Chechen um, special forces that had surrounded him in uh, in Rostov-on-Don. If uh, Prigozhin hadn't backed down and uh, withdrawn, he and thousands of Wagner fighters would be dead today. But Russia would also have had the ignominy of... Uh, going through a civil war, which is why Vladimir Putin cut the deal he did to prevent a civil war from breaking out on Russian soil. But he rightly called what Prigozhin did treason and labeled Prigozhin a traitor. And then Prigozhin, who was given an opportunity to be exiled in Belarus, continued to violate the terms of his parole. Um, Putin had a meeting with Prigozhin and 35 of the top Wagner leaders on June 29th, at which time he recommended to Wagner that they terminate uh, Prigozhin as their chief. Putin named somebody that he felt would be a more appropriate chief because Wagner, doing the business that he was doing, especially in Africa, could not be led by Prigozhin, a traitor to the Russian people. Uh, Prigozhin vetoed this. Uh, Dmitry Utkin, the senior military commander of Wagner, also vetoed it. And the Wagner commanders, many of whom wanted to go along with Putin, um, they're loyal to the brand and and they did this. Then Prigozhin turned around and continued to violate his parole, uh, establish, seeking ties with Africa even after the Russian government had said they're taking over the Africa uh, operations of Wagner. So, in theory, the finger points straight at Putin. But to accept that, you have to accept that Putin is a thug, that Putin is a godfather, that Putin lords over a mafia uh, organization and uh, forget that he is the democratically elected chief executive of a modern nation state founded on the principle of the rule of law. Vladimir Putin did not order Prigozhin killed. We don't even know if anybody actually assassinated him. Four of the Wagner members on the aircraft were a personal protection detail who loaded arms, ammunition, and pyrotechnics onto that airplane. There could have been an accident. We simply don't know. But what I can say with virtual absolute certainty, is that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, had nothing to do with this. He fell from the tallest window, it would appear. Uh, and people do in Russia, like they do in the United States and Britain. Uh, inconvenient, enemies of the state meet unfortunate ends in many countries, including yours, including mine. Uh, it would not surprise me uh, if Putin had him killed uh, for all the reasons you adumbrated. But there are many foreign interests who would have an interest in killing Prigozhin also, starting with the French uh, over Niger and many other things. What do you think of the possibility? It's scarcely, by the way, flattering to Russia if a foreign state were able to uh, blow up an aircraft that took off from Moscow bound for St. Petersburg, 
that would be a whole different set of embarrassment. Uh, but there is the possibility that a foreign intelligence service uh, was able to reach Prigozhin, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I Like I said, the only thing I'm discounting is if Vladimir Putin ordered this hit. I'll just, uh, before I get to the foreign intelligence, I'll make one more thing. People forget that at the time Prigozhin's plane came down, Russia was celebrating one of the great diplomatic uh, victories of all time. And that is, of course, what was taking place at the BRICS summit in South Africa, uh, the enlargement of BRICS by six nations, uh, the bringing together of a uh, economic um, organization that could challenge the G7, challenge the singularity of American uh, hegemony in the world, uh, the beginning of what they would hope to be a multipolar, um, you know, era of cooperation. Uh, Russia is going to take over BRICS in January of 2024 and will be the head of BRICS when this expansion takes place. Um, this is what Putin wanted people to be talking about. So it just seems absurd that he would suck the air out of the story by timing the death of somebody he could kill at any time he wanted. Why do it over to there? Why do it at this time? Why do it in a way that the whole world's going to be pointing the finger at him? Um, so that's that's why. Now, here's the only thing I have against foreign intelligence services doing it in the manner that Prigozhin came down. That is literally an act of war. I mean, if you want to commit nuclear suicide, if France really wants to do that, then assassinate somebody of the profile of Prigozhin in Russia. Uh, it's an act of war. The French intelligence, as they've shown in many of their previous past escapades, uh, the, the murder of Greenpeace activists uh, off the coast of New Zealand, um, aren't that good. Uh, people find out who did it, how they did it, what they did it, etc. I just don't see Macron being suicidal, just like I don't see the CIA being suicidal or MI6 being suicidal. It is an act of war against the nuclear-armed nation that already has high level of tensions against the three. If France wanted Prigozhin dead, they could have killed him in Africa. That's where Prigozhin was most vulnerable. That's where an event like this should have taken place. The fact that it was done in Russia means that if Prigozhin was taken out by non-natural occurrences, or an accident or something of that nature, I think the finger more likely goes to um, Russian oligarchs, Russian businessmen of a shadowy character. Prigozhin was a billionaire who ran a multi-billion dollar company that was unraveling as he spoke. The Russians had taken over his prunk companies, his shadow companies. They had taken over the business of Wagner. Uh, Prigozhin owed billions of dollars. People lost billions of dollars. And when you're dealing with that kind of money, um, you know, the, the, the revenge factor becomes quite hard. And it, it, hi, and as you said, people tend to fall out of buildings in Russia, and um, they aren't always pushed out by government hands. Uh, many times they die from non-government hands because of the uh, retained corruption that still exists in Russia today from the era of the oligarchs. Yes, uh, moving uh, to the war. Uh, uh, Larry Johnson, uh, a former uh, uh, intelligence officer and, uh, and Pentagon man, uh, he said today, I know I put this to you before and you, you don't agree with me, uh, but I'm going to keep putting it to you until the point that you might, because as the facts change, so do your opinions. 
He said today, Larry Johnson said today, that he felt there was a military coup coming Zelensky's way. Do you still set your hat against that? As things deteriorate, as you have rightly pointed out, as facts change, um, then you have to go back and re-examine the data. As the Ukrainian army runs out of options, um, they are literally committing their strategic reserves to this final battle, this this battle of exploitation to achieve the victory that they want, and they're not going to get it. And when this when this counteroffensive finally runs its course, and the reality of what happened sinks in, as Russia commits a quarter of a million reserves that they have yet to commit, and they begin to push the Ukrainians back dramatically, um, you could very well have a 1917 moment. Again, bringing up the specter of Russian history, where Russian troops just quit the front line, pivoted, and marched against the Kerensky government um, in an effort to bring about peace. Uh, I still believe that the West does not want that outcome and uh, and that the, uh, the the officers and the Ukrainian military don't want that. And uh, even Russia doesn't want that because you don't know who you're going to get uh, to replace Zelensky. Right now, Zelensky is a known quantity uh, that allows all sides to make calculations about how the future is going to unfold. If you if a coup is perpetrated, it creates many unknowns, but the soldiers don't give a damn, excuse my language, about the political uh, maneuverings of Russia, the Zelensky government, the West. They care about their lives. They care about uh, their country. And when it becomes apparent that their continued sacrifice serves no useful end, especially no useful end for Ukraine, um, the possibility of a coup uh, rises up. So I'm not dismissing it altogether. I'm just saying that you know, it's a complicated situation that you have to have certain factors fall in place, and they're not there yet. I still see a resilience in the Ukrainian army, a determination to try and win, regardless of how futile that seems. So I don't think they're at the point right yet where they're going to, uh, we're going to have a replay of uh, January, February two, uh, 1917 on, on the line. Some things are achieved, though. Uh... Zelensky's mother-in-law has just bought a 150 million pound mansion in Egypt. Uh, Who knew there's a whole colony of uh, oligarchs with mansions uh, uh, on the seaside in Egypt? I hadn't thought of that. Uh, But uh, this to be added to the property portfolio in Tel Aviv, in uh, in Paris, in London, in Florida, uh, the Zelenskys, and one presumes the Comprador, have enriched themselves vastly in the course of Zelensky's uh, tenure. This must add insult to injury uh, to the troops and to their families. It, it, it should. Um, and logically speaking, it must. But we have to remember that Ukraine is singularly the most corrupt place in Europe today, and it competes with the most corrupt place in the world today. Corruption is in the lifeblood of Ukraine. Ukraine can't exist without corruption. Everything about Ukraine is corrupt from the top to the bottom, and the people have become so inured to corruption that uh, they. what should stand out is just egregious and um, damning and... Uh, 
uh, worthy of removal from office or worse, uh, simply disappears into the background. Uh, Zelensky having his mother buy a multi-million dollar mansion in Egypt um, should stand out, except that every other uh, general, every other politician's mother is buying a similar mansion elsewhere in the world. The elite of Ukraine have fled Ukraine. They will not suffer for Ukraine. They have stolen everything from Ukraine. All the aid that the British people provided, that the Americans provided through their governments, not that they directly provided it, but they had their taxes taken from them, packaged and sent to the most corrupt place on the planet, where seven out of $10 that are sent to Ukraine don't make it to where they're supposed to go, but rather make it to the pockets of the corrupt oligarchs, corrupt businessmen, corrupt politicians of Zelensky himself. This is the norm in Ukraine. So the Ukrainians aren't shocked by it the way you and I are. And what I hope the American people, the British people, the French people, and everybody else out there saying, why do we continue to support such a corrupt regime? That question must be asked and answers must be demanded of our politicians. Lastly, Scott, uh, survey the battlefield uh, for us uh, now, will you? Uh, the uh, Robertino uh, seems to be where the, uh, the Ukrainians are making a significant push. Will they make any gains there? On the other hand, the Russian army is sweeping towards that town that just out of nowhere occurred to me so many months ago. I've maybe mentioned it on the show a hundred times. It looks like the place that will next be captured, liberated uh, by the Russian forces, Kupiansk. Is the, are these the two most interesting uh, parts of the front? Is it more or less stasis elsewhere, or is the fighting going on right along the line? The fighting's going on right along the line. Um... Uh, it's there's there's no I mean, there's levels of intensity, but it's not like there's uh, all is quiet on the front by uh, by Bakhmut, all is quiet on the front by Krasny Liman. No, there's constant fighting going back and forth. The the thing is, on the majority of the front, you have an equilibrium where you have the Russians and the Ukrainians putting pressure on each other and they're grinding each other like this. But there's a relative equilibrium. In places like Robotino, which is going to be the alpha and the omega of this counteroffensive, it's where it began back in early June, where the 47th and 33rd Brigades, two of the elite brigades trained and equipped by the West, initiated the assault. And it's today where the 47th reconstituted and the 82nd Air Landing Brigade and several others have been thrown in for the final assault. Uh, this is where it ends. Understand that the 82nd and the two other brigades that constituted the Strategic Reserve are the last forces, last trained forces that Ukraine has. They have no other reserves. When these reserves die, and they are dying in huge numbers right now, there's nothing left. These were the exploitation forces. These were the forces that were to be committed to the battle once the first line of defense was pierced, once the second line of defense was pierced. They would come in and finish the breaching of the Russian defensive lines. The first line of defense has yet to be reached by Ukraine. They are dying in the village of Robotino and the fallow fields that surround Robotino. They will not breach the first line of defense. They will not succeed. They will fail. But what they are doing is burning through precious human and material resources that could be used to plug the gaps elsewhere in the line, such as Kupiansk, 
where there are insufficient Ukrainian forces to deal with the Russians who are now pushing them. They will capture Kupiansk. They will threaten Kharkov. Ukraine will be compelled to take more troops away from those areas where you have an equilibrium, which now means you have an imbalance. And then the Russians will continue to push there. And eventually the Russians will push Ukrainians back, compelling what I believe will be a precipitous retreat, the Dnieper River, which is the major geographical feature behind which Ukraine might have a chance of reestablishing a coherent defense. Their defenses right now are going to collapse in the coming weeks and months. Scott Ritter, as always, a privilege to interview you. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Trump jailhouse to the White House. Uh, 15,000 of you nearly have voted overwhelmingly that uh, Trump's going to do it, whether from the jailhouse or not. He's bound for the White House. Lasse is in Austria on RFK. Let's hear from Lasse. Go ahead. Hi there, George. Thank you for having me today. Um, I wanted to ask you about a thing you mentioned in the beginning of the show, which is that you support RFK Jr. Um, I wonder how this fits into your usual politics, considering that RFK Jr. has pledged unconditional support, that's a quote, to Israel while spouting vitriolic anti-Palestinian rhetoric. And uh, he also obviously agreed to an interview with Max Blumenthal, um, which he later refused to attend um, after making this pledge to Israel. Well, uh, you're obviously a new viewer, or you will have heard me speak, I hope, very powerfully on exactly this subject on several occasions, Uh, not just here on the mother of all talk shows, uh, but in a specially tailored 10-minute address, which is readily available under shorts uh, on my YouTube channel. I have done so many times. But given the hour, I'll have to treat you to the short version, uh, which is this. Nobody can teach me anything about the Israel-Palestine question. Nobody uh, can put me in second place uh, when it comes to standing up for Palestinian rights. Nobody can accuse me of having done other than spend 50 years of my life, the best years of my life, fighting uh, against the crimes of Israel and fighting for a just solution for the Palestinian people. There's nobody, I can think of none anyway, who have better or for longer uh, done that than me. So as you'll have gathered from the tone in my voice, I take some exception to it. But the short version is this, that the most urgent and biggest question in the world today is to halt the rush to World War III and a nuclear confrontation between the superpowers which will destroy all of Palestine, every Palestinian, every Israeli for that matter, every Austrian, every German, every Frenchman, every Britain, everyone in the world. Therefore, that's more important than the Israel-Palestine question, however important 
the Israel-Palestine question is, and it is my view, that the man best able to pull America out of all the foreign wars, Donald Trump didn't do that. I don't believe he'll do it next time. He didn't start any new wars. I don't think he'll start any new wars next time. But he will not end all the wars in which the United States is involved. He will not scatter the CIA and the FBI to the wind. He will not destroy the overweening power of Big Pharma and its corrupt and potentially fatal power in the world. He will not govern for the poor and the marginalized in the United States in the way that Bobby Kennedy Jr. would do. So I have to, as you have to, well, neither of us has to because neither of us has got a vote. But we have to balance these two things. I believe that Robert F. Kennedy's views on Israel-Palestine border on the unhinged. They're not just obscene. They're not just grotesque. They border on the unhinged. And I am extremely sorry indeed that he holds these views, if indeed he genuinely does hold these views. I think he probably does, which makes it even worse. But don't try and guilt trip me, Mr. Austria. It's good night, Vienna, because the hour is nigh. I just want to thank all of you for watching what I hope was an entertaining and indeed brusque and a bullion episode of the Mother of All Talk Shows. The good news is, God willing, I'll be back again on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9pm and I'm going to ask each of you to do me this favour. Between now and Wednesday, speak to one other person and tell them about this show, how to find it, when and at what time, so that next Wednesday's audience breaks all records. Good night.